Prime Minister Anthony Albanese calls himself a non-practicing or cultural Catholic. He's not alone. In the US, Pew Research finds half of those raised in the faith call themselves lapsed Catholics. They're unable or unwilling to completely abandon their heritage. So what gives Catholicism such a strong cultural grip on Australia, even as religious observance falls? Philosopher James Franklin tackles the question in his new book, Catholic Thought and Catholic Action. Yes, well, people are born into the Catholic Church and baptised in it, and in many cases brought up in it by their families or uh, uh, the school education. Of course, we remember so much of school education in Australia is still controlled by the Catholic Church. Of course, you can quit. The Inquisition is not here. There's no downside in quitting. But if you do stay there, you just have to put up with people having a very wide range of views. I wonder, though, Jim, whether that division, in a way, is a sort of a, a source of strength, because is that why we have this sizable group of people, including the current Prime Minister, I should say, who call themselves non-practising cultural Catholics? <laughs> yes, like Curtin and, uh, yes, our present Prime Minister, they quit, but in a way... They never quite quit, especially often in the ethical side. They'll say that they learnt something about their ethics, their commitment to social justice, for example, from their Catholic upbringing, and they don't want to deny that, even though they don't believe any of uh, what's sometimes called the mumbo-jumbo. Yeah, that's, that's a phrase from uh, Attlee, the socialist British prime minister, who said uh, about Christianity, believe in the ethics, can't believe the mumbo-jumbo. Well, a lot of... Uh, ex-Catholics believe something like that. They never really get away from it, especially on the ethical side. Is it something unique to Catholicism, by the way? Because it's uh, perhaps not impossible, but frankly, it's almost pointless to say you're a a non-practicing cultural Anglican or a (laughs) non-practicing cultural (laughs) Baptist Uh, or Pentecostal. Gillard almost said something like she's a non-practicing cultural Baptist because she did have an upbringing like that. So it can happen, but there's something special about the Catholic Church in its high level of organisation, for example, in its school organisation. So you can be a cultural Catholic without being a practising Catholic by having such a soaking in your bringing up, going to church, going to school, in a way that is not quite so true, I think, of other traditions, other Christian traditions. They don't have quite the same sense around almost in our upbringing and one of one of the chapters in my book is about how especially in the mid-20th century the catholics tried to make their culture a complete culture so that everything you joined was a catholic thing and you had catholic fraternities for doctors and for lawyers and for oh, yeah. bis- and for That's business right. people and yeah even engineers i i just heard i hadn't realized that postal workers train workers transport you know, transport union dentists They all had their Catholic fraternities and a communion breakfast every year so that they formed their own culture, talked to each other, supported each other, shared views, met each other so that Catholics married Catholics. And not so much in this country, but certainly in Europe, you even had Catholic trade unions. I mean, I think you had unofficial Catholic trade unions in this country, but in Europe, you, you had very explicitly Catholic trade unions. Yes, that's right. And here, in some sense, you didn't need explicitly Catholic trade unions because Catholics were so strong in the Labour Party 
And if the communists could be got out and expelled, then uh, you virtually had Catholic control of unions. Almost true in New South Wales, uh, where the communists were expelled. The, the Carl government in the 1950s was very heavily Catholic and based on a lot of Catholic control of the unions. Now, Jim, this fascinating book covers, uh, look, to put it in plain language, the good, the bad and the ugly. And there's a lot of good, and we are going to discuss that. But I want to ask you about the ugliest first. Why did you think it was necessary to write a chapter discussing Jared Ridsdale, Australia's worst pedophile priest? History is about what happened, not what you wish had happened, and not what theory says ought to have happened, as Thomas Sowell said. If you're going to be serious about history, you've got to have the full picture. And that is the, well, I suppose, tip of the iceberg. Jared Ridsdale raped very many people. And he wasn't quite a one-off in the sense that people who upstairs in the church who knew about his activity failed to stop him. Well, that's part of the story, and uh, there's no point in denying it, and especially since everybody knows about it. Uh, we had a royal commission into it, so Australia has had the, what is, I think, the most intensive outside investigation of a national Catholic church anywhere in the world ever. Those stories ought to be told as much as any good stories. Hmm. And I think, on balance, you think that was a very healthy process. I mean, I think you say in the book that one of the least attractive features of old Catholic Australia was its lack of accountability. That's right. Loyalty was called in, and that tended to mean don't question and don't demand accountability for people upstairs. So the Catholic Church, for example, failed to publish its accounts. Well, it means who knows what's going on in there. Now, another very difficult aspect that you don't shy away from is this historical phenomenon of the Magdalene laundries. These were places that Protestant propaganda described as almost slave-like in their conditions. I think you find, though, that this description was not entirely without truth. That's right. Protestant propaganda for, for years talked about convent slave laundries and people laughed at it, but it was not so far from the truth. They took girls off the streets. The original idea was a very good one, that uh, there was many destitute young women on the streets and the nuns took them in and gave them a refuge. It was like refuges from domestic violence today. But at some point around 1900, they became prisons because courts referred girls who were involved in prostitution or were just without invisible means of support to the laundries and they were locked in. And they were laundry work was how these institutions supported themselves. They were very underfunded. They weren't funded by government at all, and they were poorly funded by Catholic authorities, who, of course, had, were always short of money. Laundry work was extremely hard, and they weren't properly educated either. It was close to slave labour. They were all let out when they were 18, given them some very basic support to make their way in the world. But it's a story of good intentions going wrong in execution, I suppose you would say that. Of course, there are many bad stories about institutionalisation of various people in mental institutions and child immigrants and so on in the mid-20th century. It was a time of institutionalisation as a solution to too many problems. Mm. But, yeah, the Catholic Church has to wear that it got some of that wrong. Yeah, and as you point out in the book, quite horribly wrong. I mean, I've got to say what struck me, Jim, about this chapter dealing with the Magdalene laundries is that 
the nuns, for whatever their, their good intent, they were hopelessly, inadequately qualified to cope with assisting the lives of young women who'd often been abused, sexually abused by their fathers. They just weren't equipped yeah. to deal with this. They were not qualified. That's right. There was no sense that you ought to be qualified or that there was any relevant qualifications to have. People went into convents at very young ages, like 15, and their training was in prayer. So that's not much help for dealing with people, disturbed people who have absolutely the opposite kind of background. Yeah, it wasn't going to work. And there wasn't proper thought given by those people building these institutions what you should do about it. This is the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West with you. I'm speaking with James Franklin, and Jim's new book is Catholic Thought and Catholic Action, Scenes from Australian Catholic Life. Let's talk about the way Catholic teaching and one particular Catholic politician literally changed the face of Australia. Who are you talking about here? I'm talking about Arthur Corwell, especially in his time as immigration minister in the late 1940s. He was appointed Australia's first immigration minister by the Chifley government, itself heavily Catholic, in 1945. And it was his job to implement the populate or perish plan. He worked very hard to find immigrants. In the end, he found them in the camps of Central Europe, where there were, by 1946 or so, a million refugees from the Red Army left over from the disturbed times of the last few years. There was a coordinated world plan, and the Australian part of the plan was to take about 160 or 170,000 of those, Poles, Baltic peoples, Ukrainians, eventually Italians, originally Eastern Europeans who are in, in camps, bring them to Australia, give them work, and call them New Australians. Mm. And it was the first mass non-English-speaking immigration into Australia. It was an extraordinary success, and it yeah, changed the face of Australia because it was successful. It might not have been. People could have been xenophobic and decided that we couldn't have these, but Corwell convinced everybody it would help that he was a strong Labor man, and it was, of course, Labor who was traditionally suspicious about immigration plans because they thought that it was you know, importing cheap Labor. Mm. As a strict Labor man... Corwell forced it through and managed to convince the newspapers as well, who again were hard to convince, that it was marvellous for Australia. Yeah, but this Jim was very clever on the part of Corwell. We think of him as this rather rough-hewn man, but he was very, very clever. First of all, as you say, he referred to the refugees and the new economic migrants as new Australians. He wanted Australians to think of them as new brothers and sisters. And the second thing is, even though most of the, the first intake started off as sort of blonde-haired and blue-eyed, Corwell really did lay the groundwork for a much more multicultural country, a lot more Southern Europeans uh, and then people from the Middle East. Uh, what was the mm. Catholic imperative, the Catholic teaching that drove him on this question? Well, Catholic teaching is that immigrants, people in difficult position overseas, have a certain right to the free spaces of rich countries. It's a matter of social justice. It's not to say that all immigrants should be allowed in and but nevertheless, the rich countries who have space have, a, have an actual obligation, a literal obligation, to uh, do something for those in poor positions like refugees. 
And long after Corwell, what role did Catholic figures play in opening Australia to large-scale immigration from Asia? Santa Maria was very in favour of immigration in the late 1970s from of the Vietnamese refugees. Yeah, this was so the prominent this, Catholic layman, Bob Santa Maria. Yes, he was a prominent Catholic layman and long-term commentator, though not quite so active personally in politics. But from the 50s, he was still very influential behind the scenes in uh, forming opinion, especially on the right of politics. And it was the Fraser government that, without too much fanfare, decided in the late 1970s that they could cope with large numbers of Asian immigrants, mainly Vietnamese and Vietnamese Chinese, who were then being expelled in enormous numbers from Vietnam itself as boat people. It was very much a repeat of what Corwell had done in the late 1940s. Now, one issue, Jim, that is really dominating the news at the moment is the rights of First Nations peoples, Indigenous Australians, and perhaps the case that really created a new era of Indigenous recognition was the Mabo decision on native title back in 1992. Was it a coincidence that I think the majority of the High Court justices who ruled in favour of Mabo were very observant Catholics. Yes, two judges most responsible for the decision were Sir Gerard Brennan and William Dean, and they were very serious Catholics, not just serious as Catholics, but serious as Catholic philosophers of law. If you like to look back at what they wrote in the decades before, they were very insistent on the Catholic philosophy of law, which is that the point of law is to implement an abstract standard of justice rather than just to coordinate things like deciding which side the road to drive on. So they think there is an abstract standard of justice. The point of law is to implement that. The point of criminal law is to convict the people who deserve it, those who have actually done something wrong. In Mabo, they said there was a basic value of the law, the equality of persons, which previous uh, precedents of terra nullius saying that indigenous people had no land rights violated. And they said, well, that is a moral principle, an essential part of the law. And that was the basis, they said, of overturning the precedent of terra nullius and deciding that indigenous people, as equal to everyone else, had the same land rights as everyone else. James Franklin, Jim's new book is Catholic Thought and Catholic Action, Scenes from Australian Catholic Life, and it's published by Connor Court. Jim, thank you for joining us on the Religion and Ethics Report. Many thanks. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.